Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. And now in the wings where artists talk about their work and their journey towards performance. Actors Killian Scott, Stephen Hogan and Morgan C. Jones talk about working on The United States versus Ulysses by Colin Murphy. My name is Killian Scott. My name is Morgan C. Jones. My name is Stephen Hogan and I play Morris Ernst in the show. The show is called The US versus Ulysses. That's a big secret. It stands for secret. Well, funnily enough, I was actually born Killian Murphy, but there was a very delightful man from Cork who, who happened to get, uh, get to the posts first, so I ended up uh, changing it to Killian Scott. I uh, changed the C to a K as well because... I had identified that outside of Ireland, people tend to pronounce uh, Killian with a C as Cillian, which was something I was personally hoping to avoid. So um, Killian Scott at this stage. (laughs) It's about the obscenity trial that happened in 1933 that was really brought about deliberately by uh, Random House to hopefully get uh, clearance to publish Ulysses in the States. I predominantly play the part of John Munro Woolsey, the judge presiding over the obscenity case involving Ulysses in 1933. Well, Ulysses at that stage had in fact been banned in the States for about 10 years. There'd been a previous case where it had been found to be obscene. So uh, specifically, it was about the the graphic uh, sexual content of Molly Bloom. And uh, so it, it, it was a fairly bank to right case. I mean, all, all uh, the defence had to do, the prosecution was to read out Molly Bloom's stuff in court and you know, there you go, slam dunk um, it was going to be obscene. So Morris Ernst had to try and avoid having extracts read out in court. He didn't altogether succeed in that but uh, he'd already established the precedent in a previous uh, obscenity trial of a book called The Well of Loneliness um, by Radcliffe Hall, uh, which was the first kind of iconic um, book on uh, lesbianism, the principal characters was a lesbian. And he had won that and established the, the, the point that uh, books should be judged on their effect on adults and not on children, and that literary merit was significant. So he'd established that precedent and... He, and uh, uh, Random House were hoping to to kind of move forward on that basis with this trial. So in this play, all the actors were doing a variety of different voices, American characters and Irish characters, and there's characters popping up from Ulysses. But my primary role in this is Sam Coleman, who was prosecuting on the side of the American government. So he was he was trying to make the argument that Ulysses is certainly obscene and therefore should remain banned in the United States. Well, Morris Ernst was a very interesting guy. Second generation immigrant, his parents were, his dad was a tailor from Czechoslovakia and he put himself through law school by selling shirts. And he had an extraordinary life. Uh, He was kind of known as a human dynamo and very involved in all sorts of progressive causes such as birth control, protection of expressions for for sexual rights and very much uh, anything to do with the First or Second Amendment, he he was there. But he, he had, there was a kind of strange contradiction to Ernst uh, with regards to communism. And and he was best mates with J. Edgar Hoover and uh, he banned all communists from working at the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, of which he was kind of chairman. And, you know, they're a remarkably progressive organization. But there was this strange contradiction. 
with with Ernst, and um, he took on. I think in 1956, he he defended uh, uh, the dictator of Dominica, Trujillo. There was a dissenter who was kidnapped in New York City, and he was paid by the dictator to produce this 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 report, which was a complete whitewash. So he, he had this strange, you know, contradictory nature. I've got as far as page 167 twice, and that's the uh, rock on which the ship of my Joycean studies foundered. I was hoping that page 168 would be dirtier, and I just never got that far. Of course I've read Dubliners. Anybody with Dublin in their address should read Dubliners. I've dipped in and out of Ulysses, and this has been a great kind of uh, reminder that there should be no more procrastination, and I should... Uh, go again in it, but I, I've I've done it on radio. I I did a BBC production of it about uh, ten years ago, and uh, I played numerous roles in that, including Buck Mulligan. Um, that was kind of an epic, an epic call. It's a lot more accessible than Ulysses, and indeed, acres more accessible than Finnegan's Wake. Um, and one of the things I love most about Dubliners actually is the fact you can walk around town and still see bits of it. You know, I, I'm fortunate enough on my walk home to Drumcondra, I can walk through parts of town and I can see the bridge where the urchins take uh, stuff in Dubliners takes place and walking past various houses that are mentioned. So it's it's nice. It's, you know, kind of like, a, I suppose, a tour guide for people who want to think they're erudite but aren't. So I was in the uh, BBC production of Ulysses, directed by Jeremy Mortimer, that, that Andrew Scott was in. I think he played Stephen Dedalus and, and Henry Goodman played Bloom. And uh, there was a kind of roll call of, of every Irish actor working in, in London at the time. It was a kind of an epic undertaking. Uh, so I'm, you know, reasonably familiar with it, you could say. This is actually the first experience I've had of um, of doing <laughs> a, a play for radio. You know, and the funny thing is, is that the sort of the last time I was really on stage was to do a stage version of Under Milkwood by Dylan Thomas, which, of course, is originally a radio play. But no, this was my, my first experience. Um, and it's a bit different to some of the experiences I've, I've had more recently. But uh, I think with the script like this, and especially when you're based off a text like Ulysses, there's such richness and there's so much character in the, in the lines. And to be able to be so playful in spite of you know, these times and all the restrictions and the actors, we have to be separated somewhat. It's been an amazingly sort of creatively invigorating experience to just play these different voices and to bounce off each other and stuff. I trained at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama in Glasgow, and uh, it was an amazing place. It was a kind of a great civic conservatoire for music and drama. And uh, it was mainly because of our creative factory at, at that time. And um, Graham McLaren was, was was in my ear. We were we were kind of flatmates at one point. He he uh, he went on to run the the Abbey, and uh, so we're, we're we're good mates. Did a lot of work together uh, with his company, Theatre Babel, and he went on to the, run the National Theatre of Scotland after that. So yeah, it was a, it was a great time. Well, how I got into the business was, I mean, it was freakishly fortunate how I kind of went into the professional side of things. Um, but certainly when I went to UCD, I, I became obsessed and addicted to the Drama Society. And we would just, you know, one week you're doing Sean O'Casey, the next week you're doing David Mamet. And we were all writing as well. And and then by the time I kind of got to my finals, I I discovered that there was such a thing as an acting school, which was at that point, I didn't realize that actors actually trained. I was so naive. Um, and I got into a school in London called the Drama Centre, 
which was one of those schools that was like, it, it wouldn't have been considered, I think, famous in the way that Rad or Lambda was. But it had actors like Tom Hardy and Michael Fassbender and Colin Firth and, you know, really wonderful actors. But it was also sort of the first method-based acting institution in London. So it was fondly nicknamed the Trauma Centre. And one's time there was more like kind of group therapy for two to three years <laughs> and doing ballet classes aside from really anything else. And I was very, very lucky. I, I We were just about to go into our third year of the training and I had sent out a bunch of CVs and headshots, which I'd kind of been doing for a few years and nothing had, re- no one had really bitten, you know, hundreds of these letters and you're kind of, no one's responding. And I just sort of thought, oh, before I go into the final year of my training, I'll, I'll do that. I'll put out some, some feelers and I sent one to Maureen Hughes who at the time I I didn't know I just knew she was a very very significant casting director here in Ireland and Maureen with all the grace of God she responded and she said here listen why don't you come in on Tuesday next week and do an audition for this new show Love Hate which I mean at the time meant nothing to me other than this is a real job and just it's real and this concept of to be paid to, to act was just such a foreign thing. But it was obviously in drama school, the thing that you're all working towards. But, you know, for two years, I'd, all we'd done was exercises in classrooms. I got into the business predominantly because I did try other things um, in civilian life and I discovered quite quickly I wasn't particularly well suited or any good at them. And uh, I'd always wanted to be involved. My My dream was always to be a film actor. So... The logical way of going about that in Dublin in the 80s, because there wasn't really a, you know, a drama school or a, a place you could go to say, uh, hi, I'm a film actor. So I, I started out making work for myself as a stand-up comedian and then wound up selling into television and then wound up on stage in straight plays and then eventually got common sense and stopped being a stand-up comedian. And now I just act with my voice and do nice old character man parts so I was eventually I was I was cast as as Tommy in in Love Hate and in the space of about 10 days went from preparing for third year of drama school to you know being on a set opposite Tom Von Lawler and Aidan Gillen and you know being um, signed with a wonderful agent in in London and it was extremely exciting to go so quickly from classroom to sort of a, a professional space and you're just it's a bit like I've been over the last couple of days. You're just terribly green and naive and like you don't really know how anything works. And, you know, on on sets, you're given, you know, three or four, whatever the pages you're filming that day. They're called, we call them the sides. And it's just the script of the scenes you're doing that day. But like I arrived to set with my backpack with two full episodes just in case they might want to pick up additional things, which, of course, never happens because it's so tightly scheduled. And I was sort of, you know, it just takes a while to understand. I think that what's an interesting for an actor is that, at least from my experience, you spend this time training. Again, if you choose to go that road and you don't have to. But then there's a whole new world of training that occurs once you actually start working on a set. Because, you know, in drama school, you do mad stuff and then you're, you're punching the walls or you're doing handstands, whatever the thing is to get the vibe for the scene because you have that time. But on sets, everything moves so quickly. And also you're waiting for ages before you're actually called to do your line or do your scene. So it, you just got to start learning on the job. And, you know, you start doing auditions and that's a different learning curve in itself. But 
there was just something, I mean, it was just one of the most exciting experiences of my life. I mean, I've had, I've gotten to learn from a few wonderful Irish actors, particularly, I mean, Aidan Gillen, predominantly on Love, Hate. I've done a couple of films with Brendan Gleeson. And, and, and the kindness of um, Brendan, you know, was just extraordinary and very generous. And even when we had to do a couple of the press bits, you know, I'd be terrified and still am terrified of such things. And he'd just be a very, just a very generous and kind and, and loving figure in that kind of environment. Um, you know, it's, you kind of just, you learn from these guys how to sort of exist on a set and in that environment. Um, but also you see the kind of professionalism and the ability to deliver under in extraordinary circumstances and under great pressure sometimes. In the radio play, The U.S. versus Ulysses, playing Judge John Monroe Woolsey, again, my usual line of research, which was to try and find something of him speaking, um, either on audio or on film, I was confounded by that. I was able to find photographs of him. He looks like a fairly standard... 1930s wasp gentleman from America. Looking to the text that Colin has provided, he's he's referenced as a 56-year-old man of impeccable wasp lineage. So you fill in the gaps. I filled in the gaps. I was, you know, what was a classic 1930s wasp? Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So there's any amount of Roosevelt talking. So it, it, there's my characterization is based a lot on him. But it's equally based on John Houseman, who would have been one of the Mercury players. And the March of Time and the, the Mercury Theatre, they were contemporaries in the era of radio that were the, the, the artifice that we have, that we're recreating a recreation of a recreation kind of thing. It, it's very much in the style and in homage to 19, classic 1930s American radio. So that's where the John Houseman thing comes in. And I just thought John Houseman was a great actor anyway. So if you can at all steal from somebody, steal from the best. You know, it was a very interesting period, 1933. It was uh, the New Deal. It was Roosevelt. It was that extraordinary period of radio drama with Orson Welles, with, um, you know, the, the uh, Federal Theatre Fund. And there was all sorts of extraordinary things happening, particularly on radio. And I think our, our play as a... Uh, a radio play within a radio play is, is very appropriate for, for that time. You know, War of the Worlds happened a couple of years later and, you know, it was it was a very magical period and, and, and radio heyday, in a sense. Eamon Trollibus, he was a guy I did on 98FM years ago. He was a, a kind of a parody of Eamon McTamoss, who his main superpower was he taught people Irish without being able to speak Irish, which is something I share with the character. I, I was on Nighthawks on RTE television for its last season, which was marvellous, with spending time with the, the very sadly missed and late lamented Shay Healy, who was a, a star, an absolute star of a man to know. And then in terms of film work, I was fortunate enough to be in a very controversial uh, short movie that got uh, nominated for an Oscar um, called Detainment which was about the Jamie Bulger killing in Liverpool a number of years ago. Um, and it was, it was a, a, a very heavy film to do. Most stuff I would do over the last 30 years, um, I forget about the moment. I, that's not to sound you know, 
callous or flaky, but it's just you you finish with a character and you take off his coat and you hang it up and you go home and you go, oh, that, that, forget about it. Detainment was in my head for months because the research was absolutely harrowing and the the job of filming it it was not it it was a it was a pleasant set but it wasn't um, it wasn't the happy place that most film sets are um well, the Jamie Bulger case involved the it was a, a, the murder that shocked the world certainly shocked liverpool in the early 90s a 3 year old boy called Jamie Bulger was abducted from a supermarket his mother had popped into a butcher's shop for 2 minutes and uh, he was abducted and found a number of days later brutally murdered and dismembered and it turned out that it was two local kids of the age of 11 who had done it and it was i mean it, it is a, a harrowing harrowing case and entertainment it's it's based on the transcript interviews in the police cell with the two boys and that was it, there's a lot of responsibility to recreating something like that i've done i've done a lot of that kind of reenactment work but i mean indeed colin murphy who's written the us versus ulysses i've done a lot of his i suppose if he was shakespeare you'd call them history plays i've i've done the film version of the guarantee which again is you know you're bringing real issues and real people to life you have a responsibility to the you know the subject matter and the people to do it properly at the best of times yeah i i think the joy of what we do is the the interchange the the process of, of of working together for a common purpose and trying to make sense of our common human story if you like and and uh, that job i think is incredibly important and and has great honor and dignity in us and uh, i think it's very important work and and radio is a, a way in which we can uh, fairly affordably tell important stories and speak truth to power and and you know it's 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 a very intimate private relationship that the listener has uh, with either an audiobook or a radio play it's it's psychologically uh, very close and uh, very like for me film acting in a way you know that the, the radio mic is is when you're close on mic is, is exactly the same as being close on camera. You know, the, the intimacy and, and, and the, the nuance that you need to be compelling and truthful in a, in a, in a cinematic close-up is exactly the same as you, do, you acquired on a radio close-up. The love-hate thing is, is really fascinating because we had kind of survived a couple of seasons before it felt like it, it became what it became. That was really sort of, it seemed, season three. So there was kind of this progression of like... Hey, are you that guy in that show? And then, wait, are you in Love Hate? And then, are you Tommy in Love Hate? And then, are you Killian Scott or whatever the thing is? And with the third season, that seemed to happen within a for one or two episodes airing. And I just, again, you're sort of you're so kind of overwhelmed by it at the time that it's only in the distance in the future that you can kind of get a sense. I mean, it was extremely. It was equal parts exciting and terrifying like unquestionably um it's certainly these are things that certainly one can't sort of train for or prepare for and you just got to try and find a way to take it with a sense of humor and a sense of lightness um because it's an unusual experience but like love hate was it was such a meaningful i suppose what it touched into for me was that like it's a very meaningful feeling when people are relating to what you're doing and you know 
I still feel relatively green in this business. But, you know, I've done a few things since. And it's difficult sometimes if you do something and you feel like no one's seen it or, you know, it's kind of been lost. So to actually do something where it did capture people's attention, um, it's a really cool thing, you know. It's really nice. I've been involved in uh, specifically voice acting, I think, probably about 32 years now. I have to think back to, I'm going back through the ages of my kids. And I think the first one I was able to pay for properly was about 32 years ago. So, yeah. Uh, I, I started off in the BBC Radio Drama Company. Uh, at Broadcasting House, which is which uh, is very like the RT Radio Drama Company, as was. Um, it's still going, um, despite the fact that um, BBC Radio Drama is somewhat under siege. Uh, they're they're you know they're reducing output uh, continually, um, but there is still a core of about eight actors on rotating three month contracts, and it's it's an amazing job. You know, you get to work with extraordinary people on great material. And uh, it, it's, it, you know, there's nothing like it in the world. And uh, it equips you very well for all sorts of other areas of voice work. Well, Dublin Murders was, funnily enough, was the last, before this was the last thing I did. So I did Dublin Murders, we finished that. And then there was a year of kind of, you know, you're, you're looking at a couple of scripts, you're doing auditions or whatever. And then Corona hit. So it's been a, it's been a, a you know, two plus years since I was last on a set, but... It's a really extraordinary experience to get to play a lead role over eight episodes alongside someone like Sarah Green, where the two of us have a very similar kind of approach in the sense that we like to have a, you know, we like people to have a nice time and to be able to enjoy their work. And so the atmosphere, although we were doing very dark material, um, it felt really satisfying and rewarding. And, um, you know, Rob, that character was just it's kind of gold gift for an actor because it's so rich and there's so much going on. And it was lovely to work. I hadn't worked in Ireland in, I don't know, since Calvary or something like that, for years. So to get to spend like seven or eight months, primarily in Belfast, but also in Dublin, with an Irish crew. And I just, I did like that show though, because I just thought it was really dark and muddy and your primary characters are complete wrecks. Like they're maybe attempting to be functioning good human beings but have been battered by the winds over time that <laughs> they're just really struggling to hold any semblance of a, of, a, of a character together yeah it was lovely I really enjoyed that one yeah I think I've been incredibly lucky I think I've been consistent with work I think the main thing is to keep working and I do a lot of interesting stuff from audiobooks computer games radio drama films television a lot of theatre and you know you're you're just trying to bring something interesting uh, and uh, that's spontaneous and fresh and, and and believable to to the work you do. And I've been to amazing places. Uh, I've filmed all over the world. It's been a, a very giving and generous uh, career, I think, but not without its its stresses and challenges and and uh, you know frustrations. The way I approach playing any character is, um, for, well, particularly somebody who has, is based on a, a real-life character, is I, I go to the best source material I can find. I, I look for any existing video, any sound recordings of them. If you wanted to, it, it's, it's not a job of doing an impression, but in order to get the essence of a character, I, I research very 
um, carefully. Yeah, I, I, I was uh, very fortunate to play Charlie Hawhey and Collins play Hawhey Gregory, which specifically looked at the deal done in the early 80s between Tony Gregory, um, the independent socialist type candidate from the city centre. He did a deal with uh, Charlie Hawhey's quite hawkish, old school, traditional Irish, give us your property, mister, uh, government. And it was uh, the, it's a great backdrop of a story. A terrific character to get to play. I mean, I certainly was no fan of Mr. Hawhey, his politics or his policies. But um, for an actor to be able to play a character like that, it was it just a remarkable opportunity. Uh, with Charlie Hawhey, uh, a big part of the research was going back and looking at the the, the classic the classic speeches. The uh, you know we have for far too long we have been living beyond our means. We must all tighten our belts. That whole guff that he spouted, the you know to to get the the cadence and the rhythm of his speech, um, he had he had what I would always class as a nineteen thirties Dublin telephone voice wanting to sound posh in case somebody telephoned the house. Uh, but, but again, I was, I was able to go back and find any amount of footage of him just walking. There's, a, there's an awful lot in the way a character walks will inform how you portray them on stage. And, and then, of course, there's any, any amount of written uh, material that I, I was able to dive into for, for Charlie Hawhey. Yeah, this last year has obviously been a very unusual time, to say, put it mildly, obviously. I mean... We've all been all the most basic things that are so important, whether it's, you know, some kind of social activity or it's work you do, all those things being removed. And there was something about it that I found kind of useful in the sense that, well, it's kind of forcing you to be still to some degree. And, you know, you don't have the things that would normally distract you. So you've got to try and get, you know, find a certain amount of comfort, which is that space of maybe being by yourself and not really having much to do. And and then also to see, well, what can you do with that time? Um, for the last six years, I've chosen music and German, actually, as my personal means of self-torture. Uh, so <laughs> trying to master either of those things has been, um, you know, I thought becoming an actor was a difficult thing, but it turns out that learning how to play good music and certainly learning how to speak the German language have been uh, extraordinary trials. Of a to a Kafka degree on occasion, but um, I, I just kind of put all my time and energy into those things, really. Um, but it's like anything; I find it's it's like life at large. Normally, it's that it does go in peaks and troughs. So there were periods, and I'm, I'm sure for a lot of people it was the same. It's periods where you're almost kind of content, and you're like, "Well, isn't it lovely that it's quiet?" Again, if you're lucky that you're you can pay your rent and you've got food on the table. And you can kind of almost appreciate that sort of experience. And then there's other periods where you feel very strongly, wow, it's been six months since I hugged a person or X amount since I saw my parents or, you know, nieces or, or kids or if you have kids, you know. And I just, I found that it sort of moved pretty vacillated between those two extremes of feeling like this is totally fine to this is really not fine. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like bouncing between those two polars. And it also felt like fitting revenge because I had a sneaking suspicion that oh, he didn't like Nighthawks. <laughs> in terms of what's next, I think I'm going to be going to do something in London later this year. But it's one of those things where it's like you, you'll legitimately be 
assassinated if you talk about it. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> it's one of those things where unfortunately I've got to kind of just keep stum about it for the moment. But that's looking like the plan. So it looks like there's some work ahead. Or perhaps we might try and force Colin Murphy to, to, to write a few more of these radio plays for us, you know. And there you heard the voices of actors Killian Scott, Stephen Hogan and Morgan C. Jones talking about working on the United States versus Ulysses by Colin Murphy. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.